Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by Yale University. This panel discussion of faith and citizenship in America was part of a two-day conference on May 3rd and 4th at Yale Divinity School. Academicians, journalists, and activists speak about the intersection of faith and politics. Harold Attridge, Dean of the Divinity School, gives an introduction. The panel is moderated by Harlan Dalton, a professor at Yale Law School and Yale Divinity School. Welcome to the third session of the Conference on Faith and Citizenship at Yale Divinity School. I'm Harry Attridge, Dean of the School. Uh, we continue our conversation with a panel considering the national dimensions of the conversation. Our panelists include uh, Randall Balmer, Professor of American Religious History at Barnard College, Columbia. Serene Jones, Titus Street Professor of Theology here at Yale Divinity School. Michael Kieschnick, President and Co-Founder of Working Assets. Peter Larman, Executive Director of Progress Progressive Christians Uniting. David Price, U.S. Uh, Congressional Representative from North Carolina, the 4th Congressional District. And Amy Sullivan, Contributing Editor to the Washington Monthly. The moderator for this part of our conversation is Professor Harlan Dalton. Professor Dalton is a distinguished senior professor at the law school and an Episcopal priest. He's currently on loan from the law school to the Divinity School, working on a two-year assignment leading a special initiative on faith and politics. Please join me in welcoming the panel and its moderator, Professor Harlan Dalton. During his keynote address, E.J. Dionne reminded us that, in the words of Richard Niebuhr, we venture on ground well-trod by angels and fools. I leave it to each of you to choose the reference group that fits you best. And now I'd like to ask the people in the audience to play quietly while I have a conversation with my uh, panelists here. Um, forget everything you've been told about the ground rules, um, if, in fact, you've been told anything. Um, I'm, I'm going to hold you each to five, ask you each questions, but I'm going to hold you each to five minutes. Um, I have some designated eye rollers out there who will begin to look um, frustrated at that point. And then that will allow um, for cross-talk about each of the questions, as well as save some time for the potted plants in the room. Uh, I heard from some of them during the break, and they actually seem to think they have something to say, so we, we want to get them into the conversation. Okay, you guys are welcome back. Um, I actually want to begin with a, with a kind of a general question. Um, and it picks up on where Professor Lakeland uh, left off at the last panel. Um, this morning at worship, it was a lovely worship service, and you can tell which ones of us are there by the kind of crusty stuff in the corner of our eyes. Um, we ended by singing uh, a song. It's actually the international version of the Finnish national anthem, which is an interesting concept in and of itself. Uh, an amazing song, some of which words are, uh, um, my country skies are bluer than the ocean, and sunlight beams on clover, leaf, and pine. But other lands have sunlight, too, and clover. And skies are everywhere as blue as mine. Oh, hear my song, O God of all the nations, a song of peace for their land and for mine. Uh, lurking in the background of this conference uh, is the notion or the fear of religion gone wild. Uh, but of course, there's always the, uh, the issue of citizenship gone wild. And so I guess what I want to start by asking you all, um, what would it take uh, to be able to have this song sung during the seventh inning stretch at baseball games rather than God Bless America? LAUGHTER 
let's just say, let's just say a pretty thoroughgoing transformation of, uh, of, of values, um, which I, I think we are pessimists of the intellect but optimists of the will here, and I think there's some need for us to think that that might be possible at some point, but it's going to take uh, a, an acute uh, amount of, of listening and witness by American Christians to be able to do this. And the difficulty we have is, uh, in many respects, a kind of embeddedness or overinvestment in a no, an unself-critical notion of what Christianity means and what democracy means and what citizenship means. As long as we're uh, in a kind of fearful way over-invested and clinging to that and not willing to be self-critical and to hear the voices of the victims of American empire and lift them up, we'll never be through that transformation. I, um, I've been to Yankee Stadium once. It's a, it's a moral issue for me. <laughs> um, and when I went, uh, uh, we tried to leave during the middle of the seventh inning. And the ushers at Yankee Stadium actually were holding chains, presenting, uh, preventing anyone from moving in the aisles or toward the exits during the singing of God Bless America. I actually wrote an op-ed piece about it, and, and a lot of people were really angry with me, saying, I, <laughs> yeah, God Bless America, uh, one of the, my bumper stickers says, God Bless the Whole World, No Exceptions. Uh, but I think that the, the importance of the God Bless America thing historically is that the 9-11 tragedy, and it is a tragedy, I don't want to diminish that, allowed us as Americans to resume the, the rhetoric of dualism, which nurtured us for most of the 20th century until the fall of the Soviet Union when we lost our most durable enemy. And it is in the nature of human beings to define oneself in opposition to one's enemy. And once we had that, once that enemy disappeared, we were casting about, I think, as a culture looking for a new enemy. 9-11 gave us a new enemy. I just uh, finished this book on religion and the presidency from, from JFK to George W. Bush. That evening, on, uh, in his address from the Oval Office, Bush is using this language of evil and dualism relentlessly. It's a five-minute address, but it just permeates the entire thing. And that's, I think, the reason that the, the uh, God Bless America thing has become so important. And he ends that address with that phrase, God Bless America. Nothing new about that. People do it all the time, or presidents do it all the time. But we were back again to this language of dualism after a dozen years or so when we didn't have it at our resource. We can move on if that's if. I'll I'll say a little something. I uh, uh, just just picking up on some of um, what EJ and others said uh, earlier, particularly the reference to uh, to, to Richard Niebuhr. Uh, Richard Niebuhr's uh, idea of uh, communities, uh, ever more inclusive communities, as concentric circles that uh, that we bear some. Uh, relationship to and that we negotiate the relations among, I think is, uh, is an important uh, contribution and uh, maybe conceptualizes what we're trying to deal with here. There, there, I think many people would say that, uh, that the notion of citizenship uh, 
and the kind of um, identity we have with our country is itself, uh, at least potentially, a, a corrective to uh, an excessive American individualism. Now, both of these, uh, both of these ideas have strong religious uh, pedigrees. We, uh, we, we, of course, gain a, our, our notion of freedom and human dignity and, and human autonomy. Much of that has a religious uh, pedigree, but of course, in our religious traditions, that's uh, coupled with uh, a, a sense that uh, we uh, are uh, part of a community and we're responsible to that, uh, that community. And uh, patriotism is one form of that. It's a form that can be uh, distorted. It's a form that can take us off in some excessive directions. And, and it, it's a form that needs to be checked itself with a, a broader and more universal sense of uh, citizenship, as a panelist said uh, uh, this morning. But uh, I, uh, I think the, uh, the, the notion of uh, being part of something larger than ourselves and something whose values uh, kind of transcend our own immediate uh, self-interest, uh, there's something very important about that, and, and it's, it's important that it be checked against uh, our religious faith and our religious under, understandings, but I don't think it's to be simply denigrated. I'd like to suggest, Harlan, that that's the wrong thing to worry about. <laughs> so if, if we're fighting about God Bless America baseball games, we've already lost. Um, I mean, I'm not a big baseball fan, but the song is not the problem. Um, so I'd like to talk about um, citizenship a little bit. I feel like we've been a little loose on citizenship. And in some sense, we don't take the Christian right seriously. Um, there's parts of the Christian right that take citizenship not in the obligation uh, sense, but really that we're a Christian nation. And somehow we've failed to talk about that. So I'd like to recommend a book to people. It's a wonderful little book, um, uh, Kingdom Coming. You might think that it's a book about uh, the future success of the civil rights movement, written by a Yale Divinity School professor. But in fact, um, the subtitle uh, tells a story. It's about Christian nationalism. And so I'm more worried about Monica Goodling. Does everyone know Monica Goodling? No, none of us knew Monica Goodling until probably two weeks ago uh, when she was revealed to be Alberto Gonzalez senior uh, counsel, White House liaison. She's the one who uh, was in charge of hiring people into the 400 political appointments uh, in the uh, Justice Department. And she went to a school uh, whose motto was and is uh, developing Christian leaders to change the world. Again, it could be the Yale Divinity School, but it's not. It's Regent University. And until a couple of weeks ago, they quite proudly uh, had on their website that they had over 150 graduates currently working in the Bush administration. And so the, the point of that is that they're serious. They're patient. They uh, are willing to work hard. And Amy Sullivan and I had a could debate about this last night at dinner, she felt that they got hired because they were sort of willing to follow orders. Um, I think that they wanted to be hired because they had a long-term uh, mission. Um, and so I'm much more worried about the Monicas of the world uh, than I am what's sung at the baseball game. This, Can by I? the way, this is a very bright man. I, I just told him that he was the last of the speakers. 
And so he's obviously figured out a way to get his uh, message out here at the very beginning and to frame the entire conversation. That's Serene. Oh, I just wanted to get in um, another uh, reading recommendation if Michael's going to uh, put Kingdom Coming out there. Uh, just because I, I do believe that there is less of a problem of um, young Christians trying to enter government and make this a theocracy um, and more of a problem perhaps of kind of the nature of how many young evangelicals um, view their role. Um, and for that, uh, I would direct you to a review that Alan Wolf wrote in The New Republic of uh, my friend David Quo's book, uh, which I thought was actually uh, in many parts quite a mean review, but he uh, made some very good points about asking uh, whether so many very bright evangelicals were so willing to set aside any questions of uh, Bush's policies and the impact of his politics uh, because they heard his testimony and because that's so powerful in the evangelical community that they looked into his eyes, they saw his heart, or they thought they did, um, and that was good enough for them. And I think that's certainly a, a relevant question to ask, and that may be the question to ask about somebody like Monica Goodling, um, is less was she trying to change the Justice Department in John Ashcroft's image, um, and more was she just willing to set aside the questions that she had. Thank you, Amy. Serene? Um, yes, this builds on that and actually comes back to your question about Yankee Stadium, which I have never <laughs> been in. Um, I, I am in complete agreement, um, Michael, with your comment. I do not think that uh, the religious right is fading, um, and I think that, in fact, it, it, um, it's a very agile community and um, is set to emerge in ever-changing ways. Um, one of the things that has been interesting to me, though, as a theologian who spends hours trying to teach students how to think theologically, the incapacity of um, the evangelical right to engage in a substantive theological discussion about political issues, um, a, a, a strange um, absence of even the capacity to talk about scripture, but to talk about God's sovereignty, to talk about sin, to claim the language of atonement and go with it as politically weighty claims is a rhetoric that is simply not there. So I think that's one place that we really, um, in the sort of work that we do at Yale Divinity School, need to push hard in developing a Christian leadership that can weigh in doctrinally and theologically on these issues. What they do get is the heart. And this is, when I sang that song this morning, it made me cry. I get a little, you know, it, it's moving because it's beautiful. Because it talks about loving God and loving the land. And I do worry that the progressive mainstream, old line churches in the United States have lost that sense of the beautiful and the capacity to move people in deep ways to act on their political commitments. Thank you. Thank you all. Congressman Price, you are faith and citizenship incarnate. And maybe I should just stop there. Oh, Please don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> you have a master's degree from Yale Divinity School and a uh, Yale PhD as well in political science. You taught political science and pub public policy at Duke and have written books on the American political system. Since being elected to Congress 20 years ago, can you believe it? You have been a leader on issues too numerous to relate, and I therefore will not relate them. 
But at present, you serve as whip of the House Democratic Caucus, and more importantly for this morning, you are a founder of the Democratic Caucus Faith Working Group. Now, on your congressional website, you feature a thoughtful essay by one of your favorite authors, whose name happens to be David Price, uh, entitled The Theological Roots of Humility in Politics. So this in some ways follows on to what Serena was just saying. The Theological Roots of Humility in Politics. And in that essay, you draw on Reinhold Niebuhr. And by the way, I've been keeping track, and so far the score is uh, Richard Niebuhr, 7, Reinhold Niebuhr, 3, and Amy Sullivan, 10. Um, <laughs> but in that essay, you draw on, on Reinhold Niebuhr and, or is it Richard Niebuhr, actually? No, it's Reinhold. Reinhold, Reinhold Niebuhr, Paul's letter to the Romans, and Abraham Lincoln to make a powerful case for spiritual hum humility and for humility in the civic arena as well. And so I want to ask you, how might people of faith exemplify the humility that you are calling for and at the same time be prophetic? And also, what needs to happen in order for our civic life to be marked by the same humility? And will we need to alter our conception of what it means to be American in order to achieve that? In five minutes on the clock, <laughs> you're on the clock. <laughs> uh, how to exemplify a, uh, a faith-based uh, humility and be prophetic. That's the key phrase, I think, because what we're talking about here is not uh, skittishness about uh, engaging, mm -hmm. or for that matter, a skittishness about uh, fully uh, taking our, our, our moral and religious convictions into the political arena. There's some ground rules in a democracy as to how you do that, but we're not talking here about, um, uh, about pulling our punches. What we're talking about is the, the kind of combination that I think we must strive for uh, between a full-throated advocacy of, of uh, what, we, what we believe in and what we aspire to in society, and at the same time an, an understanding rooted uh, in uh, theology and in our uh, understanding of human nature and sin, uh, an understanding that uh, even our most noble aspirations, even the causes with which we're identified most uh, uh, strongly uh, are likely to carry the taint of, of self-seeking and self-aggrandizement, and, and in any event, we're not to identify our cause or our power with God's will. That's a fundamental theological teaching, which uh, large uh, elements of the religious community, I, I think, have forgotten or suppressed, and it's one of the most important things we should be talking about. Let me just back off a minute, and I'll, I won't uh, take long, but um, I, I, the, the broader question of what our faith brings to the political arena, uh, I think, has to start with that, uh, with that advocacy, with the, the kind of positive thrust. And that's, uh, uh, I, as a, as a Democratic member of, uh, of Congress, have uh, found it ironic that uh, the, the questions even being raised, you know, as to... Uh, as to whether we uh, have those sorts of motivations at work uh, on our side of the aisle. I'll, I'll grant that they're at work uh, across the spectrum, but certainly when I think of my own history, why I was drawn into political life and why I will always think it's important whether I'm in office or not to engage. You know, it's rooted in the civil rights movement and in, a, and in a, the kind of experience we had in really uh, confronting and, and in many cases altering our, our, our faith and our politics in the years I was in this place and, and was uh, coming uh, 
to some degree of maturity about these, these matters. So the first, the positive thrust, I think, is the first thing, and I, I've said a little bit earlier about what I think that uh, entails, uh, uh, liberty, dignity for the individual, uh, in, in, in some sort of creative tension with a sense of, of obligation and, and community and uh, uh, a kind of transcendent uh, reference point. But what our faith also brings to politics is a certain set of, uh, of uh, constraints. And I think people often understand that less well. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, actually, the checks and balances in the U.S. Constitution, if you read Madison and, and understand some of Madison's background, there's a good deal of Calvinism in all that. You know, that power is never to be trusted and, and given unchecked uh, sway. But this notion of, uh, of, of humility, the, uh, and, and I do identify this with uh, the writings of uh, Niebuhr, and he grounds it in uh, the, the greatest statement of this in American uh, uh, history, I think, is, uh, is Lincoln's uh, second inaugural. Uh, and, and I'll just uh, remind you of the key phrase there, and that, that, that'll be it. But uh, I think it pretty well says it all. By the way, this is not pulling punches. This is at the height of the Civil War. This is the height of the Civil War in a speech where he emphasizes we must finish the work we are in. But listen to what else he says. Both sides read the same Bible and pray to the same God. Each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any man should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. But let us judge not that we be not judged. The prayers of both could not be answered, that of neither has been answered fully. Reinhold Abers said about that statement, this puts the relation of our moral commitments in history to our religious reservations about the partiality of our own moral commitments more precisely than any statement or theologian in our history has put them. That's uh, what I mean by humility. And that's a perfect example of, of bringing religious understandings of humility into the civic space. I mean, it's a stunning example. Uh, do others have uh, observations or, or reflections on uh, being uh, humble prophets in the uh, public square? I guess I'd just or, like, or, humble, or humble civilians, for that matter. I think there is um, perhaps an untapped um, <laughs> hunger out there for humble people of faith, uh, particularly very visible people of faith. I think that's one of the reasons that last summer, when Barack Obama gave his speech on faith and politics uh, to Jim Wallace's group, that people responded so strongly to it. He didn't come out and directly say, we've had a president in the White House um, for whom there are no questions. His faith makes him extremely certain. He knows because he's a believer that what he does is ordained by God, and that's, he asks himself no questions after that. But the model that Obama put out there, and if you haven't read the speech, I actually have it on my iPod because I'm a total nerd and I listen to it all the time. I would suggest listening or reading the speech uh, because he really sets out a model um, for another type of faith, a faith where uh, I believe he said, um, you know, when I became saved, the questions didn't go away. And that's how faith is for most people, but for six or seven years now, that's not what they've heard. 
let's stay with you. Um, Ms. Sullivan. You've emerged as one of the leading journalists uh, writing about politics and religion. You're a graduate of some other divinity school whose name escapes me, uh, and have served as a legislative assistant to uh, US Senator, former U.S. Senator Tom Daschle, and as editorial director of the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. Last year, the Religion News Service named you one of the 12 most influential voices in helping Democrats reach people of faith. I'm wondering why they chose the number 12. It has a certain biblical resonance. <laughs> you have written perceptively about the declining fortunes of mainstream religion in recent decades, and you attribute that de decline, at least in part, to the tendency of liberal religion to trim its faith to match its politics. The result is something you call Christianity light, L-I-T-E, a watering down of faith that leads many in your generational cohort to drift away from the church. And although they, though that is your, your, your cohort members, share the church's political and social commitments, they are appalled by its seeming message of cheap grace. Now, if the mainstream church were to actually embrace your critique, it's a thought, what would be the uh, effect on public discourse? Uh, would it be easier or harder for its members to engage non-believers and people of other faiths in the civic arena, arena if in fact we did not pull our bunches and, and did not offer cheap grace? Uh, well, there's a lot there, and I think... Um, and as you know, five minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and I should thank you, first of all, for tolerating a Harvard Divinity School graduate here. Um, it's very nice to be interfaith. Um, <laughs> 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 um, I think this touches off of what Serene brought up um, with the kind of political implications of um, the different theological orientations of our churches. Um, and what that has meant in terms of how people of faith view um, their roles as citizens, and uh, particularly whether people connect their religious convictions to their political convictions, because I, I think you may be right that that's happened much more on the right side of the spectrum than the left recently. Um, I guess I, I would like to perhaps be a little controversial and suggest that over the last few decades, three or four decades, um, a lot of mainline denominations and perhaps individual mainline churches have mistaken the appeal of liberal politics for the appeal of liberal theology. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with having liberal theological beliefs. My own dear mother has now moved from being a fairly conservative American Baptist um, to a very happy liberal theological Presbyterian. Um, but. I think there are far more liberal churches out there than there are actual Americans with theologically liberal beliefs. Um, but there has been a, a, a vacuum in the market for decades now for people who have orthodox theological beliefs but liberal politics, which has meant that people have to make a very tough choice when they're looking for a church. And I say this is someone who spent a good dozen years looking for a church after I left the Baptist church I grew up in. Um, and have made a, a, a decision I'm not entirely comfortable with all the time because there's just not a good spot for me. What this means for a lot of Americans is that on Sunday morning, they have to choose uh, between going to a church where they agree with the politics, but the theology may be a little lacking in terms of how much it pushes them, um, how much their fellow congregants kind of believe in core doctrinal issues, or they can go to a church 
where the theology is orthodox, where they feel comfortable with that, uh, but where the politics is not where they are. Um, and I'll just bring up a quick example from my own life. Uh, I went back to the Baptist church where I grew up a few summers ago. It was, in fact, the summer of 2004. And uh, was sitting in the pew as the pastor said in his sermon that it wasn't possible to be a good Christian and be a good Democrat or, and be a Democrat. Um, that has happened all over the U.S. in different churches, um, synagogues, I would imagine. Um, that's not a good feeling. On the other hand, I was at my good Episcopal church a couple of years ago for Easter when the, the priest stood up at the front and said, now, I understand that not everybody here believes in every part of the Easter story. And I thought, well, it's Easter Sunday. <laughs> I kind of think if you're here, you should believe that the resurrection happened. Which again, it's not to say there's anything wrong if that's not where you are, but on Easter Sunday, I want to hear somebody <laughs> proclaiming that Christ is risen. <laughs> so, you know, it's an uncomfortable choice, and I don't belong in either place, and I think we have a very unrepresentative panel up here because there are at least three of us who grew up as Baptists and ended up Episcopalians. But that is not the choice that most Americans have made. I think many more Americans have decided well, I have a lot of other venues through which uh, to engage my political convictions. But when I'm going to church, I'm looking for religion. And so religion is going to trump politics. And so we have a lot of people who I'm betting would love some megachurch out there that was theologically orthodox and progressive politically. And I think it's one of the reasons that somebody like Jim Wallace has had such appeal. Because whatever you say about Jim, there's no question that he believes those Christian doctrines, that he is not some wishy-washy guy out there, and yet his politics are undeniably liberal. So I think there's a, there's a good uh, appeal for that. And just quickly to wrap up, uh, I'll mention some of the political um, consequences of all of this. I think uh, when you're asking people to choose between their faith um, and something else, it's going to take a lot for them to find something that will trump their faith. Um, so, for instance, people are always raising to me in Democratic audiences the fact that, oh, the stupid evangelicals, they don't believe in evolution. Have you seen the numbers? Why should we even deal with these people who are so irrational? And I say, well, look at the polling question on that. People are usually asked, do you believe in evolution or do you believe that God created the earth? Yeah, I believe both. And I think a lot of Christians do, but there's not a question for both. So they end up going with their faith. One of the political versions of this is something like stem cell research. Now that's actually an issue on which uh, most Americans are where the Democratic position is. And yet when the debate came up last year, people like Chuck Schumer stood up and said, if you're opposed to this, it's because you're bound by your theology. And you can't let theology trump science. Science tells us this is right. Now again, you're making people make a choice there. And they may be with you on this one issue, but you may have lost the larger war. Because while they don't agree with the Republican position on stem cell research, what they do believe is that there are some questions here that we are not engaging as a society. They don't want to wake up tomorrow and find out that we're cloning human beings and we never had a conversation about it. We never talked about 
what the problems may be, as well as many of the potentials of scientific progress and scientific research. Um, and so I'll just stop there, but I think we're posing false choices um, to voters, we're posing false choices um, to Americans in terms of their, their religious homes, um, and it would be better for all of us, I think, if there were more options out there in the marketplace. Thank you, Amy. Um, and Randy, she's totally teed it up for you, but you get to speak next anyway, so hold your horses. Um, but does anybody else have, does that spark anything for anyone else that, that you're eager to say before you move on? I, just a quick point. I agree with you, but I also don't think that this distinction between orthodox theology and liberal theology even holds anymore. I think there's a whole bunch of presuppositions that proclaiming the Easter story is orthodoxy and saying, well, maybe you all read this in different ways and don't believe it. it is not orthodoxy. I think that, in fact, there's orthodox grounds for a deeply liberal theology that we need to um, begin to grab a hold of again and not even play into that kind of distinction. Let me just quickly add something that's so pertinent. I, don't, I know we need to move on to other no, panels. No, thank you. I just want to identify you, Congressman yeah. Price, for the... Uh, all right. What, what Amy says is, is so resonant, I think, in terms of uh, the kinds of uh, dilemmas of, of presentation that, uh, that, that we have, uh, again, I'm thinking especially on our, our side of the aisle. Uh, uh, a lot of this, of course, is being said about us, but sometimes we lead with our chin, I'm afraid. Sometimes we, uh, we kind of invite the characterization that we are uh, very, very uh, uh, reluctant to, to, to lead with matters of conviction and, and to acknowledge the, where, where we're coming from. Uh, just a quick example, a very good one though, I think, and that is uh, when President Bush came out with what he called his faith-based initiative, the, uh, the aura surrounding that was that that was really something new. Hey, we're going to... We're going to link up faith and, uh, and service in the, in, the, in the community. I'm afraid that, uh, and of course there was a lot of features of this that uh, had to do with uh, the Establishment Clause of the Constitution uh, being, being breached in, uh, in, in certain ways. A lot of questionable aspects which are still, by the way, tied up in the courts. Uh, the, the first reaction among many uh, liberals, many Democrats in, in the Congress was, ah, He's breaching church and state, which he, he was, in fact, doing. But that, should that have been the first reaction? I would say not. I would say not. I think our first reaction should have been, congratulations, Mr. President, where have you been? Where have you been? Let me, let me show you uh, some elderly housing that the Cosmopolitan Baptist Church of Raleigh built with uh, HUD funds a few years ago. And, and let me, uh, let me uh, if you don't know, let me tell you who's delivering Meals on Wheels every day. And let's, uh, let's talk about the way Habitat for Humanity, a faith-based organization, is working with our community development uh, funds. Um, so welcome. We're glad to have you aboard. And we, 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 we're, we're, we're with you. We're with you as we attempt to, to, to encourage people to translate their faith into action. Now, point B should be, by the way, Mr. President, there are some ground rules. This money, uh, this money's not going to fund sectarian activity. This money's not going to fund discrimination. And by the way, Mr. President, that's not because uh, some secularist somewhere is telling us that's the way it has to be. That's because we believe in this country in religious liberty. And the Establishment Clause itself is rooted in religious conviction. It's not a secular imposition. It's rooted in religious conviction.
And so as we carry out this program, there are certain ground rules, religiously grounded ground rules, that we have to, uh, to honor, that we must honor. I wish that had been our message, because I think it is authentic, and I think it would have been far more politically effective. Michael Kasich. I'd like to agree with the congressman and with Amy, but I want to disagree with Amy's logic. So I, I think that the false choices that you both talked about are absolutely right. Um, but I want to go back to why the mainstream churches have declined. I don't think it's something that's just the last 30 years. This has been going on literally for a century. Um, and I haven't actually seen evidence that the reason is because of a lack of orthodoxy. I think there's some evidence that there's a lack of clarity and a focus on sort of here's the questions you should ask as opposed to what one believes. But I actually think it's because of bad music. Evangelical churches have much better music. Much better music. Yeah, I have no doubt about this. So I'd love to see a good study of that. Can Amy, I just... you, Amy, you totally get to speak to this. I know. I know. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, I've got a whole chapter in my book coming out February 2008. Um, explaining how the religious left and mainline churches in general uh, kind of got to the point where we are now. Um, so you're right, that's much more complicated. Um, and I must admit, I have no data. Uh, but now that I'm not a social science doctoral student anymore, I don't have to worry about that as much. Um, so I can just put my theory out there. But I think it does relate, um, and perhaps music is part of it. There is, I think, undeniably, a different feel in liberal churches, um, which is why maybe some things like you know African drumming circles and interpretive dance just rub me the wrong way in those churches because I think it's trying to um, simulate this experiential uh, feeling uh, that in the evangelical churches where I grew up just came from loving Jesus and from just holding on to the doctrines that you held dear. Um, and maybe I'm being unfair, and maybe there's more of that there, but I think a more natural um, experiential feeling comes out of a, a closer connection um, to the theology. And just from my experience of church shopping, and so this may just be a slam on the churches of Washington, D.C., um, that has not been in existence as much in those churches. Okay, we're going to move on, uh, but, but all this is grist for the continuing mill. Um, I was going to refer to you as Professor Balmer, uh, but now that I know that professor is a dirty word, um, I'll just call you Father Balmer and let, and let you explain what that's about. Um, you have published widely uh, both in academic journals and in the popular press. You are a professor at Barnard College and editor-at-large for Christianity Today. You've done something that, that earns a sobriquet father. Uh, and most impressive of all, you have been a visiting professor at Yale Divinity School. <laughs> Your uh, book, Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory, a Journal into the Evangelical Subculture in America, was made into a three-part documentary for PBS, which was then followed by a second documentary, Crusade, The Life of Billy Graham. In short, you have impeccable evangelical, evangelical credentials. But then you wrote in the book, Thy Kingdom Come, in which you say that the political allegiance of evangelical voters has been misplaced. And in an NPR interview, you said of the Republican Party, 
They have taken something that is lovely and redemptive and turned it into something ugly and retributive. Needless to say, there's been quite a reaction. Um, the good news, I suppose, is that you've probably been able to pair your Christmas list, uh, Christmas card list. <laughs> um, but I want to ask you, what would it take to promote a more redemptive public expression by evangelicals? And how, much, how might such a shift in emphasis affect the nation's religious and political landscape? And then are the non-evangelicals among us, the few out there, uh, are, might we also be guilty of a parallel or reciprocal failing? Uh, good question. I'm not sure where to start on that. Uh, I think part of the problem is that there has been, uh, within the evangelical community in particular, and, uh, and Amy uh, hinted at this, uh, not so much a conversation as a singular voice. And what I've tried very hard to do, and what Jim has been doing for years, Amy is doing as well, is to introduce another voice into the conversation so that we can have uh, more than, more than a, a singular voice uh, speaking for the religious right. And I come at the issue, well, I, uh, Jennifer mentioned this morning how her organization came out of the 2004 election. Uh, I woke up on November 3rd, 2004 with a hangover, and I hadn't been drinking. And after I checked the Canadian Embassy website that day, I had to figure <laughs> out what I was going to do. Was I going to continue? I, I treated the religious right as a kind of um, uh, nagging cough or a bad cold. I thought it would just go away. And, and that morning I realized it wasn't going away. And I had to do, choose whether or not to you know, kind of retreat into my academic life, which I love and is quite wonderful, uh, or try to do something about it and, and speak to fellow evangelicals, trying to introduce this other voice. And uh, because I'm a historian, what I wanted to point out was that, and, and uh, E.J. made this point yesterday, last night, uh, is that evangelicalism throughout American history up until the final decades of the 20th century was very much a progressive cause. And I don't shy away from the word liberal in defining myself or any others, so I, I'll use that as well. You look at evangelical activi uh, political activism in the 19th century, uh, the anti-slavery movement, the push for public schools, known as common schools in the 19th century, as a way of trying to elevate the, the opportunity for those in the lowest rungs of society. The temperance movement, which in the 19th century was a progressive cause. Uh, the push for women's rights, including voting rights in the 19th century. Those were all evangelical causes. And around the turn of the 20th century, with, uh, again, E.J. mentioned this, uh, William Jennings Bryan, attempts to mitigate some of the effects of predatory capitalism. That was very much part of what evangelicalism meant. And evangelicals, in my study of American religious history, evangelicals have always advocated for those on the margins of society. And try as I might, as I look at the religious right, I just don't see those causes reflected in the actions of the agenda of the religious right. So that was one of the points I was trying to make. But also, getting to Serene's point, to try to, to, to talk to the religious right on their turf. Mm -hmm. uh, I talked about what I call the, the ruse of selective literalism. Mm -hmm. um, I find it so curious that abortion and homosexuality are the keystones of their agenda. Well, search the scriptures a little bit. Uh, Jesus said nothing about either one. Uh, abortion, Why, where did this come from? Uh, especially when it's not a consistent, consistently pro-life agenda. 
and looking at uh, what I figured, what I think are the defining moral issues of our day. Uh, you know, the, uh, James Dobson wants us to believe that it's abortion and, and same-sex unions. Uh, I think the defining moral uh, issues of our day are the war in Iraq and the use of torture. I mean, here within the Christian tradition, this is what's not talked about. Within the Christian tradition, we have centuries of thinking and writing about what is and what is not a just war. Is it the use of force the last resort? Is it a defensive war? Is there a reasonable chance of success? Have provisions been made as much as possible to protect civilians from being collateral damage? Nobody's persuaded me that the invasion of Iraq meets any of these criteria. The use of torture in the course of writing the book, Thy Kingdom Come. I contacted eight religious right organizations with a very simple, straightforward question. I wasn't trying to be querulous. I wasn't trying to start a fight with anybody. Send me, I asked, your organization's position on the use of torture. Now, these are organizations that have detailed position papers on everything, from stem cells to same-sex, everything. I heard from only two of those eight organizations. Both of them defended the Bush administration policies on torture. Now, these are people who claim to be pro-life. These are people who purport to hear a fetal scream, and yet they turn a deaf ear to the very real screams of fully formed human beings who are being tortured in the name of our government. Are these people pro-life? I mean, let's hold them to it, right? Uh, you know, even on the abortion issue, by my calculations, now somebody tell me if I'm wrong on this, from February 1st, 2006, when Samuel Alito was sworn into the Supreme Court, until January 3rd, 2007, when the new Democratic majorities took control of Congress. The Republican Religious Right Coalition controlled all three branches of the federal government. And yet they made no attempt to outlaw abortion, their signature issue. The Speaker of the House, Majority Leader of the Senate, and the Chief Executive all claimed to be pro-life evangelicals unalterably opposed to abortion, no attempt. They did manage to pass a bill that authorized the use of torture, but they did not outlaw abortion. I find that curious. I'm actually going to move on because I, I do want to uh, uh, free up time for um, the entire room. So, um, Reverend Larman. You're the executive director of Progressive, you know this by the way, you don't have to look at me that way. <laughs> you are the, the executive director of Progressive Christians Uniting you, uh, with solid credentials in liberal Protestantism. Previously, you served as senior pastor of one of America's most progressive parishes, Judson Church in New York. Your recent book, Getting on Message, challenging the Christian right from the heart of the gospel, challenges progressive Christians to reclaim the progressive nature of biblical morality and values. And you've lived in Los Angeles for many years, a city marked by pluralism that is only now beginning to be experienced in other parts of the country. So I want to ask you, by the mid-21st century, people of color with an incredible range of religious diversity will make up the majority of the U.S. population. How will this growing diversity change the conversation about faith and citizenship? I'm very pleased to, to have gotten this question, to have drawn this question, because Having I think drafted that it? <laughs> No, I don't think I did. John. 
That's so, that's so unfair. John Linder uh, gave me this question, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy for it for this reason. I think that the, uh, the greatest calling of what is variously called the, the mainline churches, the old line churches, the historically Protestant churches, is how we place ourselves in this question of are we Egypt or are we uh, Israel in the, sense of, uh, in the sense of a community of liberation and justice seeking. And this has never been resolved in the entire history of, of uh, what I will call European Christianity on these shores. So if the issue of communities of color and pluralization are put into this mix, I want to begin by suggesting that, uh, that European Christians in North America have never resolved the question of how they receive the witness of communities of color that were here or that were here simultaneously with the arrival of Europeans. We've not dealt with this at all. I follow James Baldwin and D.H. Lawrence and many people who've said that there's a, a, a buried guilty conscience that's very dangerous uh, within the psyche of, of, of these particular Christians because the, the narrative that they would cling to, that I'll say we would often cling to, is a triumphalist narrative that, that buries all of the bloodshed and, and torment uh, and the, the, the uh, expense of other people's lives to build a, a prosperous white America. So we have that as background, not to say that there aren't some uh, uh, European Christians, old line Christians who haven't understood this and who haven't offered a prophetic witness. And now we have um, new communities of color globally but also within the boundaries of the U.S. Um, who, who sometimes hold up a, a mirror to old Anglo Protestants that is actually very flattering because that mirror in a way complements the triumphalist narrative and says we're glad to be here because this is the land of opportunity, uh, uh, starting over, the rule of law, everybody gets a, a square chance. So this is very interesting to watch the dynamic of how uh, uh, the, the, tr the, the traditional main line wrestles with all of this and where it's going to come out. I just want to state a point of view. I think it's the, it's the calling and duty and responsibility. Bill Coffin said this very well once when he said, if it's patriotic to die for one's country, it is surely patriotic to keep one's country from dying, spiritually dying. I think it's the calling of the church always uh, to, to uh, steer people away from the idolatry of nation, the idolatry of material prosperity, these, these traps, these snares that are right there uh, in front of us, and to invite people in, in the frame of the United States to move out of the bubble of mass delusion, the, what I call the corporate media bubble, in which we amuse ourselves to death, pay no attention to history, and, and suppress the voices of people who are the, the victims of uh, empire. That's, I, I hope I'm not overstating my point of view, but that's, that's how I see our calling. So right now in Los Angeles, but everywhere else, 
you know, churches are on the cusp of this. How do we respond to this new situation? Do we accept the flattering image that's put to us by some communities of color? Or do we try to uh, even see that image in a somewhat pastoral way and listen carefully for some of the pain and the suppressed memories even in those narratives of deliverance and arrival on a shore of opportunity? Um, I think we need to, to listen pastorally without pretending that people are not entitled to their own perspective. That would be patronizing and wrong. Um, but I think there's, there's more to what these newer communities are saying, then we're glad to be here and let's find a big box store and all shop together. <laughs> That's the basis for community. Uh, I finally want to make one little point about um, uh, communities of color both globally and domestically in regard to justice issues facing the church. There's a slippery slope here and the slippery slope concerns sexual and gender justice. We haven't said much in our conversation about the role of the Institute for Religion and Democracy in polarizing and in many ways decapitating prophetic leadership within the Protestant bodies, but it's a huge role. And one of the things that hardcore conservatives have managed to do is to claim to speak for communities of color when it comes to sexual and gender justice and say to progressives, shut up in the name of the worldwide church, in the name of Christian unity, you can't go there because it is racist for you to go there. Very interesting way of manipulating these uh, issues. Um, I think, again, uh, that the, the muley-mouthed liberal mainliners uh, need to really do some deep prayerful reflection around this and uh, not be insensitive to cultural difference at all, but to uh, own their truth in this context or otherwise uh, watch years of what I think is profoundly important progress in terms of, I mean, remember that, that uh, homophobia is just one estuary in a rank sea of misogyny. Right? We can see a lot of important history just undone through the wrong kind of sensitivity to cultural difference. And I think my, I think my five minutes are, are up, except I want to tell one anecdote about uh, a friend, a mutual friend of Randall Balmer's of Is mine. it funny? Huh? Is it funny? It's, it's actually quite revealing in this context. It's not a, I, I don't tell funny stories. I'm Calvinist. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, my closest associate at, at Progressive Christians Uniting is a 33-year-old, uh, I don't know what you say in the Episcopal tradition, but she's an aspirant to the priesthood, but she has a, a PhD uh, from Columbia, and she worked with uh, Randall. Anyway, this goes directly to this question of uh, whether we will open our eyes to the realities and get out of the bubble to the realities around us. She went to the May 1 demonstration for immigrant stuff in um, in Los Angeles, and if you've seen the clips in recent days of the LAPD moving in, she's the one they're clubbing. I, I don't know if you saw this. Um, and uh, the issue here about this is, uh, can people come to those places of hurt in alignment with, uh, with, with communities who, who sort of see uh, the, the U.S. from an underside point of view. Come to alignment 
see that, act upon it, and still be strong and, and undaunted. Uh, I think if we could, could see the world through the eyes of the victims of abusive American power, we in the Christian community would be awakening yet again to our calling in this time and in every time. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. In spite of my chiding, your reflections are going to be uh, floating about in my head for some time. This is an amazing, uh, amazingly thoughtful and reflective panel, and there will be no drop-off with the next person, I assure you. Um, Reverend, uh, Professor, Mother Jones, um, <laughs> Serena is actually ordained in, in the UCC Church as well as Disciples of Christ. I'm not sure they call them mother, but, but she'll tell us. Um, but more importantly, for present purposes, you are the academic theologian on this panel. You're also something of a daddy's girl uh, in that you are a second generation uh, scholar and divine. You're also an avowed uh, political progressive, but you're not a bi-coastal liberal like Peter over there. Um, with very little prompting, you happily trumpet the fact that your roots are in Oklahoma and Indiana and Texas. So how does a red state Protestant like you, uh, born and bred disciples of Christ, and an academic theologian and sometime prophet, engage issues of faith in public life? And specifically, I want to ask you, how do, how do we get theology, or as you would insist, theologies, into the conversation? I saw you basically, uh, virtually vibrating when Professor Lakeland used the word eschatology earlier today. So <laughs> go for it. <laughs> when Harlan and I first met years ago, I think in the was the first hour of our conversation I used the word eschatology and he said what does that mean and uh, I explained it to him and he's never stopped using it since in every public I went to a conference at the law school on critical race theory which didn't have anything about religion in it but had eschatology in the title of the entire conference <laughs> to that question, I want to, the impulse as a systematic theologian asked about how do we get theology into the conversation is to begin to spout off doctrine, which I quite enjoy doing and could do, in, do endlessly. But I want to come back to this question about um, the failures and the limits of progressive Christianity and the way you framed it, Michael, so well, the, raising the question, is it, is it about orthodoxy? I don't think so. I think it has to do with the church music scene. The way I would put that, it has to do with this crisis of the heart. And um, a follow-up story to yours, Randall, on the Wednesday morning, 2004, I woke up with a terrible hangover mm -hmm. of the night before, just despairing. And I walked into a course I was teaching entitled Practicing Jesus with 40 students. Uh, it was mid-semester, so we had been talking about what it means to live the Christian life following the pattern of Jesus. And I really didn't even know how to begin teaching that day. I was so devastated. It was, what is this even all about? But I walked in, I said, okay, today we're going to do something you've probably never done at Divinity School before. Pull out a piece of paper. I want you to either describe with words or draw a picture of Jesus. <laughs> And you would have thought, you know, I'd ask them to jump off, you know, the edge of the earth. They look shock on their face. And we took 20 minutes to do it, and it was like pulling teeth. People could not do it. And then we had this discussion. You know, at the center of your faith is a confession in Jesus, and yet you have this 
block with respect to your aesthetic, affective ability to connect with what that means. Um, a quick follow-up story is this semester I'm teaching a course on desire and uh, the Christian faith as an attempt to begin to remedy this, I call it a, a poetic crisis of imagination um, in the progressive liberal church. Uh, a student went around for his final paper and asked fellow students what they desired. And it was a general question and they immediately came up with answers, hamburgers, um, you know, a new iPod, um, going to the new restaurant downtown. It was a big bunch of answers. And then he asked him, what do you desire with respect to God? Silence. <laughs> it, they just were silent. They're sort of stunned by the fact the question was even being asked. Um, now, one point to build on that, I think part of that failure of imagination is directly hooked into a big third-party actor in this conversation about faith and citizenship, which we sometimes refer to obliquely, but we haven't really nailed, so to speak, and that is the power of the market in this country over that space called the religious imagination. That it's, and it, it profoundly affects the way in which we think about citizenship, but not as a national question as much as it is as a question of capacity to think and imagine differently. A friend of mine, Paul Gilroy, um, has said in the United States today, it is more difficult for people um, to, it is, it is easier for people to imagine the end of the world than it is for them to imagine the world beyond the market. Um, so I think an important question for the liberal church, the orthodox liberal church, whatever church uh, is hopefully going to continue to emerge in new forms, engages this question of desire in the face of the market that has colonized our desires. And how do we articulate those new possibilities? Thank you. I actually could listen to Serene talk forever, but maybe today's not the day. <laughs> our, our final presenter before we open for questions is uh, Michael Kishnick, uh, who's busy writing even as I speak, my goodness. <laughs> Dr. Kishnick, do you have the distinction of being the one person on this panel without the burden of a theological education? Thanks be to God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But you hardly suffer from a lack of exposure to religion. You grew up in racially segregated Dallas, but in an anti-war, pro-integration church. And for reasons that you've not yet explained to me but promised to do, you are married to, of all things, an Episcopal priest. Uh, you have a PhD in public policy from Harvard, and you served as economic advisor to uh, Jerry Brown when he was governor of California, and I'm resisting Governor Moonbeam, the, uh, the appellation that was affixed to him at the time. You are co-founder and president of Working Assets, and when that was mentioned earlier by Harry, I saw a fist pump out there, so you have at least <laughs> one uh, um, uh, fan out here. And Randall is a former customer. Yeah, a former customer. We can work on that. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I want to say about you that's dear to my own heart is that you are uh, chairman of the Beatitude Society, and, and you may decide to say more about what that is by way of marketing. You also are chair of the Religion Task Force of the Democracy Alliance and a board member of Sojourners. Now, I, I, never, I, I know you want to talk about Christian nationalism, so I have a question here, but let me just say, talk about what you want to talk about <laughs> four or okay. five minutes. 
Okay, the, what, what I really want to do, I want to go back to school. I want to take your classes. <laughs> Those sound wonderful. Um, it, it is true that I don't have a degree in theology, but I have taught lots of Sunday school. Um, and that's really the front lines. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, uh, the most fun I had was teaching kindergarten. Um, and the hardest but uh, equally fun was teaching eighth graders. Um, and um, we had a really big class, and I learned a lot about theology. Um, what I want to do is uh, tell a couple of stories. I used to focus on interfaith uh, work. I thought that was a really good thing. My parents are really interested in that. That is not where I spend my time now. Liberal Christians talking to Buddhists about war is not the problem. It really, truly isn't. Christians uh, in the United States are the problem. And um, uh, of course, it's an opportunity uh, as well. And that's where the Beatitudes uh, Society comes in. Um, uh, we train progressive Christians in seminaries and divinity school, uh, hopefully to have lots of strength for what is a very hard journey. I'm going to talk about that journey uh, in a minute. Um, so it's not that I don't think interfaith work is important, but at this time in history, I think Christians have to take care uh, of our own uh, house. Uh, so let me talk a little bit about something that came up last night, which was um, the role of the press in the war. And I want to turn that to the mainstream churches. So I, I do hold George Bush responsible for the war, aided and abetted by a mainstream press. But the mainstream churches honestly did a fabulous job. I mean, I think they did a wonderful job. They, uh, to a group, they wrote eloquent, thoughtful statements. They tried to get on television. They tried to organize marches. So the mainstream churches were not the problem. They were prophetic. They did absolutely everything that could possibly be asked of them. But that's not true of pastors. And there is this, you know, wonderful quote that everybody's heard. I think it's from 67. King's famous speech at uh, Riverside about the war that, that it comes to a point um, when silence is betrayal. And that's sort of the way I felt about uh, many of the frontline pastors in liberal congregations. Uh, frankly, I think they were afraid. Right? It was a time of intimidation. Um, it was not easy to speak out against the war, and many of them uh, decided not to. And I think that was a mistake. And I don't mean in any sense to blame the invasion on them because I think George Bush, we now know, was going to go to war. But I think they missed an opportunity. And so I just want to illustrate that uh, with something that we did at our church. So, you know, it seems like a very long time ago now, but you'll probably remember that at one point there were only a thousand American soldiers who'd been killed. Uh, and there was an effort to organize vigils. Um, and, you know, most of the vigils were on street corners or, you know, outside of homes. and. Um, uh, Having some inside connection to, uh, you know, an Episcopal priest, I suggested that our church do um, a vigil. And all this is online. Um, and in the end, there were probably over 2,000 vigils around the country, and lots of them, um, you know, had 10 people or 15 people. And there were five in our hometown of Palo Alto. Um, and we had probably 400 people uh, come to that vigil. It was the largest one in the country. It was the only one in the Bay Area which was hosted by a church, the only one. Uh, and, you know, I'm terrible at liturgy, though I do like music. Um, 
but the, the liturgy that we had, which Franny designed, had to do with ringing a bell for each one of the deaths. And people wept. They just wept. People came streaming in from the neighborhood. So that's what churches can be. And that's what pastors can do. And it sort of goes back to what churches used to be, right? They used to be safe places to take difficult positions. Sometimes they're personal positions. Sometimes they're more political. And so I felt like the church turned into what it should be. It was a sanctuary. And people in hard times need sanctuaries. So I think really the challenge for us as uh, leaders who care about faith and citizenship is you know, how to give courage to, support to, uh, those frontline pastors. Because rest assured, sometimes they get fired. Right? I mean, we, you know, you bless the same-sex union in, in the wrong place and you get fired. I mean, it's, right? if you speak out for racial justice, you know, you lose your main contributor. Uh, so I don't mean to say it's easy, but I think that's really our task. The mainstream churches, they've got the politics. Mm -hmm. They're fine on the politics, but we need to help the pastors. This panel discussion on faith and citizenship in America was recorded May 4, 2007 at Yale Divinity School. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu divinity.